Thanks for joining us on the Oasis Church Podcast. To find out more about Oasis, visit CelebrateTheJourney.org. During this episode, Pastor Dennis Ritchie shares a great message that will lead you to new and deeper levels with Jesus Christ. So open up a Bible, grab a notebook, or simply listen along. of the church within persecution of the church has never stopped the church from spreading the gospel. In fact, a church, the church persecuted usually kind of fires things up and it spreads the gospel. The church thrives under persecution, which is, which is very interesting. And, um, but, but I cringe in my own spirit when Christians begin to complain that we are now persecuted, in the United States anyway, um, because we're really not. Um, We might get picked on a little bit, but we in the United States don't know what it's like to be persecuted for our faith. We just don't. And I wonder what would happen to the American church, and, and, and like for myself personally, what would happen... If we were really persecuted, like what would I do? How would I respond? How would I want to protect my family? How would I lead a church? Would we do anything differently if we were really persecuted? There are Christians that have met together today, different time zones, different countries around the world, who had to do it on the DL because they were fearful of being arrested or having violence um, taken out upon them or even possibly killed. Today, this day, Christians are underground meeting and praising God because of fear of persecution. And, and, it, and it, kind of, it kind of causes a tension in me when the church as a whole looks at the world and says, look at all of these things that are taking place in the world, and the world is moving away from a biblical morality, and so we feel this sense of, well, now we're being persecuted. But you see, the world can only live as the world lives. You, you can't expect the world, what God talks about, to be any different from what the world is. And so the world has never embraced the the, the biblical ethics and morality of, the, of, of God. And so, again, this isn't about persecution of the church. It's just about the world. Jesus said it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. I don't think it's going to get better. I mean, we can pray for the outpouring of God's spirit, but it says that the Bible teaches us that if God didn't cut short those days or these days, that even the elect would end up walking away. So it doesn't get any better. In chapter 8, of the book of Acts, the church is starting to take some heat, and things are getting really precarious for it. Stephen's just been killed, chapter 7. He was killed because he gave a blazing sermon of conviction to the religious leaders, and they threw rocks at him until he was dead, and this guy was standing by, this guy by the name of Saul. We'll get to know him later on as Paul, and, and, and Saul was there, and he just he agreed with the killing of this man because he was a follower of Jesus. See, it would seem that Saul understood that this new way of of pressing into God, 
doesn't coexist with the old traditions of the people of Israel. They, ha- they were very staunch in the way that they wanted to do things. And this whole Jesus movement was really mucking up the works for him. And so Saul knew that it had to go away. It had to, to be stopped. And so they start with killing Stephen, a righteous man filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's delve into Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. There's talking about um, of Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. A great persecution breaks out and the people are scattered they are on the move this is the words of jesus saying you know you're all going to be my witness even if i got to move you out by force and even here that we see the church is still taking a stance even in the persecution because it says that godly men buried stephen and mourn deeply for him. It was tradition in Judaism that if you were stoned as a heretic, if you were executed as a heretic, nobody grieved for you, nobody mourned for you. They just threw you in a tomb and and covered it up, and that was that. But the church said, no, this death was wrong, and we are going to grieve for this godly man. Even in the midst of persecution, they are making a stand to say, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to have any of this. Now remember that this is taking place, chapter 8 of the book of Acts takes place, some scholars have it two, some three years after the day of Pentecost. And so the church has been around for a while. There are thousands of people in the church, and now things are going to start to get dicey. There's a persecution that has broken out, and it seems that it may be the Hellenistic Jews that are being persecuted, because it kind of started with Stephen and that nectar of... um, that sector of the, of the community. We know this, that the, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but others went out. We'll, we'll learn that Philip went out. Philip was a Hellenistic Jew. Maybe the apostles stayed because they felt a, uh, a conviction to stay and preach the gospel. We don't know, but something horrible is happening to the church. A great persecution has broken out. Paul, later in Romans chapter 8, he would write this. He would say that all things work together for good for those who love God. That is, the, that is my least favorite verse in the Bible. Out of all the verses, if you can have a least favorite verse, all things work for good for those who love God, is my least favorite. And, and let me tell you why. Because in the brokenness, in the challenges, in the persecution— In the pain and the suffering, all things work for good for those who love God. I've known some very godly men and women who love the Lord, who have gone through horrible experiences in their life, and that verse holds true for them. All things work for good. And there's a tension, there's an angst that builds up in me when when I when people just throw that verse out, usually in the in the in the worst of timing. And so in the midst of what looks like after a few years, the church is, is under persecution. People are leaving Jerusalem. God is at work in those who love him. 
Stephen was killed, yet God was at work for those who love him. Jesus said, you're going to be my witness. I wonder if they thought it was going to happen this way, that they were going to come under fire and have to leave Jerusalem. And then in verse 3, we see that Saul goes around destroying the church. Destroying the church. The word destroying in here in the original language, it has this, um, this idea or this meaning of a sadistic cruelty. And it wasn't like Paul was breaking in or Saul was breaking into churches and people were meeting and hauling them off to jail. He's going house to house, men, women, being arrested, thrown in jail. That's persecution of the church. Men and women suffering for their faith in Jesus. But persecution seems to fire people up. It fires a passion within them. They begin to live their faith even more out loud in front of people. And the church, the church grows. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. So those who have been scattered, those who decided to save their lives, stay out of jail, leave their homes, went about spreading the good news. Could you imagine, just for a minute, Connecticut has outlawed Christianity. And there is a great persecution that's going to break out in Connecticut. Could you imagine just leaving everything you have and moving to Massachusetts to start over again? Now, I'm not sure if that happened to me and we had to leave and move the church to Massachusetts, that I would be right away uh, spreading the word. I think I would get there a little bit, wait, maybe feel things out, see what's going on, get a, get a feel for the temperature of the culture and of the, the social setting, and then maybe we can start preaching the good news. But it says here that they were scattered, and wherever they went, they went and just told everyone about Jesus. In the United States today, most, um, most would say that the church is contracting, meaning the church is getting smaller. Although Christianity still stays, people claim to be Christian, up around 70 to 75% of the population of the United States claims to be Christian, but church attendance is, is waning. It's getting smaller and smaller. They attribute it to a few different things. I mean, you have your usual people have been hurt by the church, people have been hurt by people in the church, and they confuse God with people or God with church, and they walk away from both. But the primary reasons for uh, the, the constriction of attendance in the church is they call it practical busyness. People are just busy doing all kinds of other things. And so church just becomes one of those other things that you do. So if you have, uh, you only have two days in the weekend and you're, and you're, and you're working all week long, and, and so, you know, you might squeeze church in once or twice a month. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the majority of the mindset of the population of the United States. 
who needs another thing to do? Why cram everything in? It's the weekend. Let's be a little bit less busy. Less, less busy. And, and you see, we, we here in the States, we are comfortable. How many of you had no access to air conditioning yesterday? We're comfortable. How many of you wished you had a cup of cold water yesterday? We're comfortable. We have all the bells and whistles that we need and that, and that we want. We're not persecuted in, in any way. We have many ways to interact with people through social media, through the internet, through, through cell phones. But I believe that we're at a time in our, uh, our culture where the people of God, we have lost our voice because for some reason, and I can't figure it out, and I find it even in my own spirit, for some reason, the good news of Jesus Christ no longer seems to excite the church. I mean, we're just like, yeah, we're saved. Yeah, those other people that need to get saved too. Hey, do you know Jesus? No. Uh, okay, bye. We, in general, have fallen very reactionary. We are more quick to stand for the things that we're against and then, than we are to stand up for the things that we're for. We tend to hang out with, with other Christians. and it's, it's safe to do that. Um, we don't get muddied up by the world. We don't have to worry about being tempted. And so we kind of have our, our base of friends and, and, and they, they are Christian. In Acts, the church is being torn apart. People are leaving Jerusalem for fear of their lives. And when they left, they did not keep their mouth shut. They went and they spread the gospel persecution somehow in some way fans the flame of passion for Jesus and people spread the gospel. Maybe, maybe that's our problem. We've gotten too comfortable. It's always been the job of the church to share the gospel. The church is supposed to be dispersed, not necessarily uh, so there's no gathering together, but that we're going to get out there and give the message of Jesus to the world. The story focuses on a guy by the name of Philip. He's not an apostle. He's one of the Hellenistic guys that was picked to do the ministry of feeding the widows, making sure they had their food. And Philip, a Jew, he goes to Samaria, a place that, well he wouldn't usually have gone because the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't really like, the, like each other. It seems that around 700-ish BC, the Samaritans are taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and they intermarriage, they intermarry, and so there's a mixing of blood. And so after, when the southern kingdom they gets taken by the Babylonians in around 500, they don't intermarry. And so now the Jews look at the Samaritans as a mixed breed. And so they look down upon them. And so there's this deep rift between Jews and Samaritans. So much so that Samaritans built their own temple where they offered sacrifices and worshiped God. And so it's a pretty big move for Philip to go to a place where he's going to be hated at first to preach to people the good news about Jesus. 
But what I find that, that, that is so captivating to me is that Philip didn't just preach the word. He had a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Demons left people screaming. People were physically healed. People who were paralyzed could walk, could move their arms. Again, this is just a guy, Philip. He's not an apostle. He's just a guy. He's a Christian who is filled with the Spirit, obedient to the Lord, and signs and wonders followed him as he is sharing the gospel. And the church really needs to get back to that. See, we're not going to, we're not going to change people's focus with fancy arguments in just words or picket signs or within the political arena. We're going to do it with the demonstration of the power of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words, persuasive words. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so he told them about Jesus, and then the manifestation of the power of God was upon him and through him, and people saw it. This is my opinion of what I'm about to say, but I don't believe, I don't see the church reaching the world today without the power of God being manifest in the church. I just don't see it. And the power of God will be on display by the church, when the church, and by the church I mean we, the people of the church, I'm included in this, I'm not singling you out, I am part of you, I am with you. But when the church are passionate, when we are passionate about the things of God, about prayer, about the word, when those things become a priority, when, when seeing and living for God every minute of every day becomes our passion, the manifest power of God will come upon us. Today, all I see in the news is a war of words. He said, she said, wah, wah, they're bad, they're bad, they're not good, they're not good. And that this war of words is vying for power within our culture. That's all it is. Imagine, imagine if the ultimate power of the universe is on display for the world to see until the church rises up in the power of God I believe we're fighting a losing battle Give verse 8 so there was great joy in the city because the good news was preached, and the power of God was demonstrated, and people were healed. His words and power confirmed that this God we serve, this God we love, this God we worship is real. Sometimes it feels like the, the church has turned the good news message of Jesus Christ into some protest chants. And, and I, I'm asking myself, have we become superficial in our approach to the throne of grace? Have we become all about the show, all about bells and whistles, all about what's in it for me? Have we lost our focus? And so by doing that, we've lost our passion to glorify God through our lives, both individual and our lives together as a community. 
And see, that's the key, that we would give glory to God, that we would live our lives in a way that brings glory to God, that the words we speak would bring glory to God, that our actions would bring glory to God. I believe when we enter in with that kind of heart, that kind of humility, then the power of God becomes available to us because power can be very dangerous in the wrong hands or with the wrong mindset or with the wrong heart, as we are going to see. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and was amazed and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the, the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed, Phil, he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. So we got this guy by the name Simon. He's a sorcerer. He's a practitioner of the black arts, and he gets a really bad rap. And, and I believe rightly so, uh, not only here in the scripture, but in other um, extra-biblical uh, historical writings. Um, there's, it's written about him that he led many in, the Ro- in Rome, in the city of Rome, away from the truth of Jesus Christ by heretical teachings, that he's the father of not, uh, Gnosticism, uh, that, that he was just, he ended up not being a really good guy for the the success of the church. He led many people astray. And he's taking these black arts. Maybe he's a really good magician, sleight of hand, I don't know. But he's wowing people, and they're calling him the great power of God. I, I introed this by saying that power in the wrong hands could be a very dangerous and or bad thing. And maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, this guy just got baptized, so he must believe in Jesus. So now he's following Philip. But Simon has, he was all about the power. He was all about making a name for himself. And when he saw Philip, the the messenger of the one true God and the power that was manifest in him, that's what his faith hinged upon. And maybe it was sincere at the beginning, but it lacked any depth. And even Jesus in chapter 2 of Luke's gospel, he, he doesn't... He, he attaches little value to a faith that is only wrapped up in signs and wonders. And so on the surface, all seems well. Simon was baptized, this, this outward expression. He's probably using the right terminology. He's following Philip everywhere. But there's more to his story. Now in Samaria, word gets back to Jerusalem. The apostles hear that the Samaritans have received the gospel, they've received Jesus. And so they send out Peter and John, cornerstones of the gospel, of this church movement. And Peter and John get there and they realize that, well, the Holy Spirit has yet to come upon them. And so as the story goes, they lay their hands on the people and the Spirit of God comes upon them. And we know throughout the scripture that when the Spirit of God comes upon people, Uh, power manifests itself in different ways. And so Simon, he sees this. 
he sees like this, this, these miracles happening, signs happening, wonders happening. And so now he wants a piece of it. When Simon saw that the Spirit was giving at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you can buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your hearts is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. He wants what the apostles have. He's willing to pay for it. See, Simon is accustomed to being the guy. People followed him around and said, you're the guy. You're the great power of God. Nobody wants to lose that, that nameplate, the great power of God. That's a good one. And so he wants that back. He wants to regain his status. He wants to be the star. Simon's idea that God's free gift could be bought and sold shows that he lacked the heart change that the gospel is to bring to each person. And Peter's harsh rebuke of him says that he knows that he hasn't been sanctified. He hasn't been changed. He's got all the bells and whistles going on on the outside. He's following Philip saying the right things, probably hugging people because, you know, that's what Christians do. But the gospel has to do with what's on the inside. And what's on the inside begins to manifest itself on the way we live our lives. And so he's told, Simon, you got to repent and pray that God's going to forgive you. And even then he's thinking, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you guys with the spiritual mojo, maybe you can pray for me instead of me praying for me because you seem to have a connection that's with him that I don't have. Let's just say history records that Simon probably will not meet us in heaven one day. And so what's all this got to do with us? Church, where's our focus? Where's the passion and our hearts for the gospel. Like if I'm up here preaching so I get recognized and I can be the next Matt Chandler or John Piper, then I'm engaging in the sin of Simon. I want to have the power of God upon me for me. If you're serving in the church so you could climb the the ranks of leadership, that's the sin of Simon. You're making it about you. Even spiritual gifts, the Bible, Bible tells us to desire them. But why are we desiring them? Is it to make us, to make much of us, or is it to bring glory to God? See, if it's about making much of us, it's the sin of Simon. When we act godly so people can know that we're godly, it's the sin of, of Simon. But the correct heart before God in a common person, and, and I don't mean to be mean, but we're all pretty common here. 
I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. But the correct heart before God in a Christian, a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit can change an entire culture. Through the gospel message, people can be healed in very real ways. And great joy can come upon them. Great joy can come upon neighborhoods, towns, cities, states. Men and women of God with the humble hearts can become fountains of divine power right where you are. In cubicle worlds, in the office, in your home, in stop and shop. You can become this fountain of God's divine power. And the power doesn't come from pursuing power. It comes from pursuing the things of God. When he becomes the most important thing. I really believe that the simplicity of Philip's message and Philip's heart before the Lord and his love for Jesus was the catalyst for signs and wonders to move through him. He made everything about Christ. See, a loving, humble heart before the Lord is the qualification for the manifestation of the power of God in your life. Every church has the potential to change towns and cities, people's lives, because we follow the same Jesus that Philip preached. We follow the same Jesus that promised us the Holy Spirit And we have the same spirit of God that was in Philip that allowed him to move into these places and do the work of God. And so really, that's that's it. I mean, mean, I'm in this too because I don't move in many signs and wonders. I don't believe we're going to make a difference until the manifestation of God's power through the church begins to wake up our culture and our world. But the church has to engage in a very different way. We have to go after it. We have to go after it hard. I think we pray for the passion, for the excitement again for the gospel, for the things of God. Instead of just kind of going through the motions, we go to our Bible studies and we, and we go to the church things and we do, the, and we do that. And we, the world around us, I should say this, the people in the world around us are desperate for good news that we have my prayer is that we would be pressing in more and more and more and more and that one day through prayer, through the word, through a passion for the things of God, that his spirit would manifest through us and we too would change the world, change the world. Words, words aren't going to work, just words aren't going to work. I just, it's, it's, it's a war of words in our culture. 
Again, could you imagine the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the power of God raising the dead? I know that sounds a little outlandish, but it's not. Because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that's within each and every one of us. And so, Lord, I, I just I pray that you would ignite again the passion in your people for your, your, your will, your desires, your plan. Would you make your church viable again? Would you manifest your power through your church so that people would know that you are real? Would you show your own people that you are real, that you are active and engaged, that you are desperate to call us back home, to gather us, to instill in us the message of the gospel. Heal your church. And once we've been healed, Father, empower your church for your glory, for your name, for your kingdom, so that people would be pointed to you, to your son. So once again, Jesus Christ, his message is good news. And we can move beyond bickering and picketing and, and all of the things that just don't work. But keep it simple. The cross, Christ, and the Spirit of God. We love you, Lord. Forgive us for a lukewarm love at times. empower your church. May your presence be known in a way that's never been felt before. Do something new. Lord Jesus, do something new. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do something new because the same old ain't working. We praise you. We press into you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. See you next week. If you want to hang out, we're going to crank up the air. Um, if you don't want to hang out, fine, be that way. <laughs> Peace.
When the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. As someone who preaches, I'm going to tell you, I know this for sure, that you have lost the crowd when they're gnashing their teeth at you from the seats. (laughs) They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. These powerful, dignified, respected religious leaders completely lose their mind and they drag Stephen out of the city. They possibly threw him down some embankments into a ditch. That's the way you stone people. They took off their coats and they threw rocks at him until he was dead. Now, now remember, stoning someone to death was hard work for the people throwing rocks. Like, that's why they, they would strip down to the waist, because they're going to work up a sweat. And when you're trying to stone a younger person, it's even more difficult. And even after you're knocked out, they still have to throw rocks at you to make sure that you, you pass. It's a horrible way to die horrible, horrible way, painful way to die. It took a while to be killed. And yet the ugliness of this scene, the ugliness of this death, we see the beauty of Christ in his life. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Look, he said, I have seen heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. During this moment where he is going to die, his focus is still on Christ. He is standing tall. He is living the race. He is going to finish well. And you know, so often we see in the scripture where Jesus is referred to as sitting at the right hand of the Father. But here Stephen sees him standing. It's almost like Jesus is welcoming home his son. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on home. Your days are over. When faced with hatred, he didn't back down. He stood tall. He lived like Jesus and he would die like Jesus. He would, he would, he would yell out, receive my spirit, just like Jesus from the cross. Father, it's into your hands that I commit my spirit. Living and dying like Christ. There is grace. There is power. And then verse 60, the last verse. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Just as Jesus prayed for those who crucified him, Stephen is asking God to forgive the people who are murdering him. There is a man of grace. There is a man of power. There is a man of wisdom in the single most difficult moment of this guy's life. He pours out grace, power, and wisdom. He lived like Christ. He would die like Christ. Now all this to say... 
it's important for us to remember these things because when our time comes, some of us, it may be a prolonged period, but who we are as people will rise to the surface. How we lived our life will be made evidence during those last moments. What was important to you will come out. And if you lived a life of grace, then grace will season those last moments of life. If you lived a life of power in the Holy Spirit, then power will season those last moments of your life. It will manifest itself at the end. If you've lived a life of pressing into God for spiritual wisdom and understanding him and knowing him better, those things, you'll be able to speak those things to those that may be in the room with you because how you live your life will come to, will come to a head when you're at the end of it. I often think, and not in a, a morose, gloomy way, but I often think, like, how will I be remembered? What will people say about me when I die? Or what, what will, you know, what will the, um, what do they call that? The eulogy. What will the eulogy be like? For me, I want to end well. Like, I, I want to end this life well. And what I'm learning as I get older, that to end well, we have to live well. And I don't mean following the rules, I don't mean trying to be a good person and not killing someone, but, but I'm, I'm talking about allowing the Holy Spirit of God to change me each and every day into the likeness of his son because his son was filled with power and grace and wisdom. I have to look at myself and say, am I submitting myself, my life, my stuff, my things, my wants, my desires, my priorities? Am I submitting these things through Jesus to God, submitting them to the Holy Spirit, listening to what God wants from me, and then being obedient to that? See, that's what a life well lived is. Am I in the Word? so that I can know who he is through his son? Am I in prayer, both, both praying with my mind and praying with my spirit? Am I praying so that I can better understand who he is? Because when my time comes, I know that the life I live will manifest in those moments before I'm taken home. And I wanna end well. I wanna end like Stephen, maybe not the whole throwing rocks till I die, but you know, the, the other parts, to be known as a person of grace and power, and wisdom. I pray the prayer of Paul in Ephesians that God would give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so I can know him better. And so, all of this text, all of this story, to say this, that, that every day is important. Every day, the things that come out of your mouth mean something, good or bad, life or death. Every action that we, we partake in means something, good or bad, life or death. Every thought that we have that we don't take captive to Christ, it becomes a distraction and pulls us away because a life that's well-lived, centered in the gospel 
will be a life well lived at the end when he calls us home. I want to encourage you, live well. Pursue with everything. Don't, don't back down. Don't stand down. Stand firm. Stand tall. Be a man and a woman of grace, power, and wisdom. And then watch how you'll be remembered. I guess you can't do that, but you know what I mean. And so, Father, we thank you for the story of your first martyr. Thank you that you've preserved it for us. Thank you that um, it's an encouragement that we too can stand tall in the face of what this world throws at us and live a life that's worth the price that's been paid by your son. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Love you guys. See you next week.